Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity title, Optimizing Patient Outcomes in Advanced Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer in a Rapidly Evolving Treatment Era, is provided by Access Medical Education and supported by educational grants from Merck Sharpen Dome Corporation and Lilly. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. This is first-line treatment for advanced non-small cell lung cancer without targetable activating mutations. We are going to focus here on non-squamous non-small cell lung cancer with some of the data in squamous cell. Um, and uh, we'll talk about single-agent checkpoint inhibition, checkpoint inhibition with chemotherapy, and then dual checkpoint inhibition with or without chemotherapy. And here are our approved options, FDA-approved options for frontline therapy for these patients without actionable mutations. And it's pretty impressive um, here, and we'll be talking about um, each of these um, specifically. Um, But this is uh, just to show you that there are a lot of options, all of which are FDA-approved and potentially reasonable options for these patients. The NCCN guidelines do help us some. Um, again, for patients who have high PDL1 expression greater than 50%, um, pembrolizumab and atezolizumab as single agents are um, preferred options, but also the combination of platinum, pemetrex, and pembrolizumab. Other recommended are the combinations of carboplatin paclitaxel bevacizumab, atezolizumab, um, carboplatin albumin bound paclitaxel and atezolizumab, and then the nevo um, ipilimumab pemetrexid uh, platinum or the nivolumab ipilimumab um, combination in certain patients. For those that are 1 to 49 percent, generally we uh, steer away from single agent. Um, immune checkpoint inhibition. And so um, the preferred here, again, for non-squamous is the platinum pemetrexid pembrolizumab, but we also do have the um, other combinations, um, including bevacizumab, the atizolizumab combination, and the ipinevo um, chemo or ipinevo alone. So we'll talk about the single agent data. This all started with the Keynote 024 study, and this was a frontline trial, untreated patients, EGFR, ALK, wild type, and patients had to have PDL1 expression of greater than 50%. This was both in squamous and non-squamous histologies. Patients received pembrolizumab for up to 35 cycles or platinum-based delta chemotherapy with the use of maintenance therapy as um, per investigator. And the primary endpoint was progression-free survival, um, others uh, overall survival for secondary endpoint. And the overall survival um, has been updated and uh, significantly um, favors the pembrolizumab arm over the chemotherapy arm at 30 months to 14.2 months. Progression-free survival also significantly better, 10 months versus six months. As Dr. Wakeley had mentioned, the response rates still are not spectacular. They're still less than 50%, so about 45% of patients. So again, in looking at responses, um, if a patient needs a a more dramatic response, then uh, immunotherapy alone may not be um, the right option. But um, this was the first study to show us that immunotherapy alone could be reasonable in patients, at least with high PDL1 expression. 
Adverse events are what we are going to see for most of these studies, um, that um, there are serious adverse events in both groups, generally less in the immunotherapy arms, but events tend to be um, slightly different, cytopenias and nausea um, for patients receiving chemotherapy and more immune-related um, toxicities, um, as you see at the bottom uh, row, 30% of these were immune-related toxicities for the pembrolizumab arm. Then moving on to Keynote 042. So this um, took a look at patients with PDL1 expression of greater than or equal to 1%, and it was a similar trial looking at pembrolizumab versus chemotherapy, um, and they had overall survival endpoints in those with um, tumor proportion scores over 50%. 20% and 1%, and each group included the group in front of us. Um, they were stratified um, by the region, ECOG performance status, histology, and the PDL1 status. So in this study, as you see early on, there is crossover of the trials, but, um, and this is looking specifically at the 50% or more, um, which was half, um, more than half of the population, but there was a improvement in median overall survival in this population, 20 months versus 12 months. When you looked at the 20% or more, um, then there was, we had about 18 months versus 13 months, so the curves are narrowing. And when we looked at 1% or more, there was still a survival benefit, 16.7 versus 12 months, um, but the curves, again, continuing to narrow. But really, in this population where we were most interested are these 1 to 49%, knowing that the 50% or more are those, are, we know that those have a benefit, and those are all included in these uh, subset of uh, the primary analysis. So the 1 to 49%, there was not a statistically significant uh, difference, and the, the curves cross over each other in the middle. Um, and so overall, there was a 13-month versus 12-month overall survival benefit in this group. This was not part of the um, statistical um, evaluation of the study. Based on, and the progression-free survival um, was not significantly different in um, patients with a tumor proportion score of greater than one. It was four, five months for the PEMBRO and 6.5 months for the for the chemo. And based on this, there was an FDA approval. Um, again, toxicities, um, similar to what we see with most of these immunotherapy alone uh, trials, a very small number of patients with um, pneumonitis, but about 28% uh, with immune-related uh, adverse events. So that led to an FDA approval, um, but again, for most patients with 1 to 49, we prefer to give uh, more active regimens that include um, some chemotherapy. So next, um, we'll talk about Empower 110. This is the single-agent atezolizumab trial compared to chemotherapy. And these were patients um, with PDL1 um, high expression, um, tumor, tumor content or immune cell content. Um, uh, three, and patients received atezolizumab or chemotherapy, depending on histology, um, and uh, the, the primary endpoint um, was overall survival in the wild-type population. And again, this is another study that in these um, tumor cell or immune cell three 
cohort had a, a significantly improvement in uh, overall survival, 20 months versus 13 months. So um, significantly improved and uh, led to an FDA approval. Toxicities, um, grade three, grade four, um, significantly higher with chemotherapy um, and uh, again similar to what we see with other single agent immunotherapy um, drugs and the majority of toxicities with atezolizumab are immune related. So if immune therapy, immune checkpoint inhibition by itself is good for some patients, how about adding it to chemotherapy? And the thought is that the chemotherapy can help to release um, tumor-associated antigens and um, enhance the um, antigen pre presentation as we improve the T-cell response. So in the first trial, the Keynote 189 trial, these were patients with, again, metastatic, non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, egfr alk wild type, and they were randomized to chemotherapy plus pembrolizumab um, or, or chemotherapy with platinum pemetrexid um, on its own. Um, and the primary endpoints were overall survival and progression-free survival. What we see here is the overall survival and uh, significantly improved in patients uh, with the combination. Uh, median was, has, it was not reached versus 11 months in the chemotherapy alone arm and um, a hazard ratio of 0.49. Looking at um, PDL1 status, um, what I think is important here is that regardless of PDL1 status, there's significant benefit in median overall survival. Um, they do uh, get wider as the higher PDL1 expression, and so patients with high PDL1 definitely benefit, and they benefit even more significantly with the combination of chemo and immunotherapy. Again, this is just looking at hazard ratios based on uh, PDL1 status. Um, and again, significant across all uh, PDL1 status. Those uh, adverse events, um, we see most patients have some adverse events, and about two thirds of patients have grade three to five. Um, both groups had uh, similar um, adverse events that led to death, about uh, 6%. Um, discontinuation slightly higher in the um, pembrolizumab arm, and um, obviously uh, immune-related adverse events significantly higher in the pembrolizumab arm, about uh, 23%, and uh, those that uh, were grade three to five, though, were only about 9%, and very few um, led to death. So overall well-tolerated, and again, one of our go-to uh, regimens for our non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer patients. Then moving to the squamous um, arena, the Keynote 407 study, looking again at metastatic non-small cell lung cancer without prior therapy with squamous cell histology. These patients receive um, carboplatin with either paclitaxel or nabpaclitaxel with pembrolizumab or placebo. And again, the primary endpoints of overall survival and progression-free survival. Here we see, again, the significant improvement in median overall survival, about 16 months versus 11 months. Um, and one of the most uh, significant uh, benefits we've seen for patients with squamous cell alone. Looking again at the um, PDL1 tumor proportion score, 
we see across all PDL1 status um, significant improvement in overall survival. And here there was less a difference uh, based on, uh, on PDL1 status. So all patients benefiting significantly. As far as adverse events, Again, we see most patients have some adverse events, um, those leading to discontinuation slightly higher for pembrolizumab, um, but those um, leading to death or um, attributed to the trial regimen were, are, were low and uh, similar in, in both arms. More immune-related um, adverse events um, in the range of about 30% in the pembrolizumab arm. So if three drugs are good, maybe four drugs would be better. Um, so the EMPOWER 150 trial um, looked at carboplatin, paclitaxel, atezolizumab, and bevacizumab, and various combinations of those four drugs. So um, in, in one of the um, arms was the chemotherapy plus bevacizumab alone. One had um, chemotherapy plus atezolizumab alone, and the other had chemotherapy plus both atezolizumab and bevacizumab. And the primary endpoint um, was progression-free survival um, followed by overall survival. So progression-free survival, again, significantly better in the combination atezolizumab, bevacizumab plus chemotherapy over the chemotherapy plus bevacizumab arm, which was the reference arm, um, eight months versus 6.8 months. And interestingly, this um, combination was allowed for patients who had EGFR and ALK alterations if they had received prior therapy for, the, for those alterations. One of the first trials that allowed these patients. And what they saw was that patients in all cohorts had a benefit. And again, really one of the first studies to show um, any benefit uh, with a uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor um, therapy in uh, EGFR and ALK um, non-small cell lung cancer. There was also a significant benefit for patients with liver metastases, though again, these numbers are small and uh, more hypothesis generating. The adverse events, again, um, the majority of patients had some adverse events, um, about 60% with grade three and four, treatment-related about 20 to 25%, um, immune-related much significantly higher in the four-drug combination, um, and more about uh, double the patients um, had uh, withdrawal from some of their treatment, about 30% versus 15%, um, but treatment-related deaths were low and uh, not significantly different. So, um, and that, again, was a regimen that is approved um, for patients with, without activating mutations. It was not approved for patients with ALK or um, EGFR alterations. Another regimen for non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer is the EMPOWER-130 with carboplatin, napaclitaxel, and atezolizumab. And again, this was for um, non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer that uh, received the chemotherapy plus atezolizumab versus placebo, um, followed by maintenance atezolizumab or, or best supportive care, or pemetrexid was allowed for these patients. Overall survival and progression-free survival were co-primary endpoints and uh, looking at wild type population. Again, we see a significant improvement in overall survival, 18.6 um, versus 13.9 months um, in the chemotherapy arm. Toxicity, again, very similar to what we've seen before. So 
if we can use chemotherapy with immunotherapy um, and we can use immunotherapy alone, what about getting rid of the chemotherapy and using dual checkpoint inhibition? And this is based on um, data that um, first came out of melanoma, looking at CTLA-4 and PD-1 or PDL one inhibitors, um, going both to the antigen uh, presenting phase and enhancing the, um, the tumor antigen presentation and T-cell effector phase and improving the T-cell effectors and uh, tumor cell death from, uh, from, from the PD-L1 uh, blockade, uh, inhibition of the PD-L1 blockade. So using both together has worked very well for melanoma. And um, there have been multiple studies in lung cancer, but the most definitive is um, probably the Checkmate 227. This study has, um, as you can see here, um, three arms in two separate cohorts. Um, and so there was a specific cohort of PDL1 expression greater than or equal to 1%, which is where the um, statistical significance um, was, uh, where the primary analysis was formed, and then the PDL1 of less than 1%. And in these combinations, they looked at IPI-NEVO as a combination. They looked at chemotherapy um, without immunotherapy as a, as a combination. And then in the PDL1 greater than or equal to 1%, they had a NEVO alone arm. And in the PDL1 less than 1%, they had a um, NEVO plus chemotherapy arm. In these, they were comparing to the chemotherapy alone arm. They looked at PDL1 as their primary biomarker. They also had a secondary um, co-primary endpoint of uh, progression-free survival in the TMB-selected population. So the final analysis, the first analysis with TMB um, was uh, published in New England Journal and showed a, a benefit based on high TMB, although um, TMB was not uh, statistically significant in their uh, final analysis. So the final analysis is really based on P the PDL1 analysis. And again, in the PDL1 greater than or equal to 1%, there was a significant improvement in overall survival for patients who received ipinevo over chemotherapy. Um, when you looked at the 1 to 49%, there was not a significant difference. Those patients with greater than 50% had a, a highly significant difference, which is where possibly more, more of the uh, benefit is coming from. Interestingly, there was also a significant difference in those with PDL1 of less than 1%, although this was not a part of their initial primary um, analysis. Um, again, here looking at the less than 1%, um, 17 months versus 12 months. Um, the FDA approval is based on the PDL1 of greater than or equal to 1%. As far as toxicities, um, so these are, are patients that have more um, toxicity, immune related toxicities in the Nevo IPI arm than in the nivolumab alone arm. And, um, and overall, again, um, higher levels of grade. 3-4 toxicities and uh, any grade toxicities, but still relatively low um, grade 3-4 toxicities. Um, the highest was about 8% uh, with um, hepatic toxicity. And then again, if using 
core cycles of chemotherapy with immunotherapy is good, what if you could just decrease the amount of chemotherapy that you're giving a patient? And so here, the Checkmate 9LA, which is um, was presented um, this year at ASCO, and some of the newest data that we have looked at ipilimumab, nivolumab, plus chemotherapy for two cycles versus chemotherapy alone um, for four cycles with the option of pemetrexid maintenance. And this primary endpoint, again, in this study was overall survival. And again, we see here significant improvement in overall survival, 15.6 versus 10.9 months for the nevo-ipi plus chemotherapy arm. And uh, toxicities here, again, more significant with the nevo-ipi chemotherapy arm um, and those leading to discontinuation um, and serious toxicities also um, much more frequent, although um, treatment-related deaths were similar in both arms. So again, this led to an FDA approval of combination ipilimumab, nivolumab, and two cycles of frontline chemotherapy. Moving on to selection of therapy for these patients without targetable activating mutations once they progress on platinum-based first-line therapy, um, assuming, again, most of these patients are uh, have progressed on immunotherapy also. For about a, a decade, we had platinum-based uh, doublet plus bevacizumab, plus or minus bevacizumab, um, and uh, this was our preferred first-line approach. We generally used the platinum-based doublet based on um, toxicities we thought were compatible with a patient's underlying uh, comorbidities, um, but we, we didn't have a lot of uh, good options for patients. But now, um, almost all patients will receive immunotherapy in the first line. So how do we treat these patients um, if they didn't receive immunotherapy in the first line? Um, maybe some of them began prior to the approvals um, or for some reason didn't get it but could be eligible. How do we treat patients who progress on chemoimmunotherapy um, and other patients who may benefit less from immunotherapy? So for, um, again, looking again at the NCCN guidelines at subsequent therapy for patients um, with uh, non-small cell lung cancer without activating mutations. We have the three immunotherapies that uh, got approved based on the second line setting, all category one, nivolumab, pembrolizumab for PDL one greater than or equal to one, and atezolizumab. Um, but again, most of these patients now are starting on um, immune checkpoint inhibitors, and so those are not going to be preferred for most patients. So now we're back to what we had um, 20 years ago, um, docetaxel, pemetrexid if not used in the front line, gemcitabine, and then the combination of remesurumab and docetaxel. This is looking back at the original data um, when uh, all of the drugs um, were looking at um, their immunotherapy, their checkpoint inhibitor versus docetaxel. And the nivolumab um, was looked at in both um, squamous cell and non-squamous cell separately. Pembrolizumab specifically in patients with PDL1 of greater than or equal to 1%, and it is elizumab um, in all comers. Just uh, very briefly, again, all of them were set up in similar ways, even though they all had uh, discrete populations, um, and patients had progressed on a prior platinum based uh, therapy. This is just looking at the um, 
the overall survival curves for all of these. And despite the fact that not all showed improvement in progression-free survival um, or um, showed significant um, benefit in response rates, overall survival was approved acro improved across the board. The top left is um, uh, nivolumab in squamous cell population, um, followed by the, the right top right, which is um, pembrolizumab, and that's looking at multiple dosing. Um, or multiple PDL1 uh, status, and then the the Oak trial with atezolizumab in the bottom left, and then um, Checkmate 057 with nivolumab in the bottom right um, with the non-squamous population. But the message here is that they all showed an improvement in overall survival with very modest response rates across the board, and they all got approval. Um, and again. Um, this is just uh, showing the key elements as we discussed, the pembrolizumab required PDL1 of greater than or equal to 1%, nivolumab separated by histology, and atizolizumab um, did not restrict on PDL1 or histology. We do have some longer-term survival results in these patients. And, um, and again, despite the fact that response rates were not uh, spectacular and that in some cases progression-free survival was minimally improved, there are some patients who have significant um, overall survival. And um, again, for uh, the previously treated, it's um, about 10 to 20% um, highest in the PDL1 of greater than 50, greater than or equal to 50%. But again, most of our patients are going to have had um, immune checkpoint inhibitors as frontline therapy. So we really need to look at something that will benefit a patient um, post immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy. And so one addition is um, ramesterumab, which was approved in 2014 in combination with docetaxel for patients who progressed after platinum based therapy. Um, this was the study, again, at second-line therapy. They received the combination of ramesterumab and docetaxel or placebo plus docetaxel. And the primary analysis, um, the primary endpoint was overall survival. And what we see here um, was a 10.5-month median overall survival versus nine months. And this was statistically significant and remained true um, across um, the time period. And so there is a, a, a statistically significant improvement in overall survival. I think um, what we also see is that the response rate um, goes up to almost 25% versus uh, about 15% for patients on docetaxel alone. And um, so we see a longer progression-free survival, 4.5 versus three months, a longer overall survival, and improvement in overall and, and improvement in the response rate. Um, so for patients who can tolerate the um, combination therapy, definitely something to be thinking about. As you might expect, we do see more toxicities, um, but the any grade and greater than grade three were very similar across the board. Um, there were um, more patients with um, cytopenias and febrile neutropenia, but um, and then uh, things like hypertension that you see and, and proteinuria that you see with the uh, VEGF inhibitors. Going back, goodness, it's been uh, quite a number of years now. We learned with, with this trial, the IPASS trial, that um, well, let me back up in time. When we first found the EGFR TKIs, Jafitinib was first being developed. 
there was a, we didn't know about the EGFR mutations at that time. We just knew that certain groups of patients seemed to be having better responses. And they tended to be people who developed lung cancer as never smokers, more often were women, um, and often tended to be Asian, either uh, in Asia or of Asian ancestry. And so this trial was launched looking at gefitinib, the first EGFR TKI that was developed, versus standard chemotherapy. And if you look at the bottom of our slide um, in panel A, you see that progression-free survival for all comers, these, these curves were crossing and it was a little bit confusing. But as this trial was being conducted, discovery was made about the activating EGFR mutations and that about 10% of all lung cancer patients, non-small cell, have an activating mutation in EGFR. Those percentages are much higher in people who are non-smokers, especially if, you ever, if you're a never smoking Asian woman with newly diagnosed lung cancer, you have about a 60% chance of it being an EGFR mutant lung cancer. So when they went back and analyzed this trial and divided it, uh, the tumors into those that had the EGFR mutations, and it was about 60% of patients on trial versus those who did not, that's panels B and C. So if there was a mutation that gefitinib was clearly better than chemo, that's panel B. And panel C, if you did not have the mutation and you got an EGFR TKI, you did very poorly, rapid progression. And so this really totally changed our paradigm of how we treat newly diagnosed non-small cell lung cancer with the idea that we've got to look for those EGFR mutations. We've now expanded that. So we've got to look for about 10 different mutations to make sure that we're giving the patients the right treatment, because this was the first study to show that when there is a targetable mutation, the targeted agent is better than chemo. And now we've seen that over and over again. And as far as we can tell from the data that exists, that also holds true for when we're giving chemoimmune therapy is not gonna be as good as giving targeted therapy. I'm gonna get back to something that Dr. Reckamp said. The idea that, well, why don't we just start with the chemo and immune therapy, and then if they have a mutation in their tumor, we can switch to the targeted therapy. The danger with that is that once you've given immune therapy with a PD-1 or PD-L1 checkpoint inhibitor, that stays around in the system for a number of months. And many of the TKIs interact very poorly with the immune checkpoint inhibitors, whether it's concurrently or whether that's the immune checkpoint is still in the system. Osimertinib, there's a very high rate of getting pneumonitis with some of the other drugs, high rates of hepatitis. So it's, it's actually potentially harmful to just give a patient immune checkpoint inhibitor while you're waiting for those molecular results. Much better to just hold on another week or two, get your results, and then you know how to move forward. Okay, so that was an aside. This is the IPASS trial. This is what showed us that, that targeted therapy was better than chemo when you identify a target, especially EGFR. That's now been shown in multiple other trials that were TKI versus chemo in the setting of EGFR and every one of these response and progression-free survival markedly better. So then the question becomes, well, which TKI should we be giving? Is there a better one? For the NCCN guidelines, you can see that osimertinib is the category one preferred one. That's from the FLORA trial, which I'll go through. But we still have these other options, erlotinib, afatinib, dacamitinib, gefitinib, and erlotinib plus ramaciramab. Um, and these are the first and second generation drugs or first generation plus VEGFR TKI. And then there's some other choices too. So one of the uh, trials that was looking at which TKI is best 
compared gefitinib, the first EGFR-TKI, first-generation drug, which I was talking about, versus dacamitinib, which is the second-generation drug. So this was the Archer 1050 study. You'll notice that this trial did not include patients with brain metastases. Um, they were looking particularly at progression-free survival. And you can see here that the dacamitinib clearly was superior to gefitinib for progression-free survival. And it actually had an overall survival benefit as well. And people are thinking, well, why don't we hear more about dacamitinib? Part of it was timing. This results came out after we had already heard about osimertinib in the first line setting from the FLORA trial. The other challenge is that with the second generation drugs, fatinib and dacamitinib, there is more toxicity in regards to rash and diarrhea. And you can see that here on this slide. A lot more issues with diarrhea, paronychia, um, different rashes, um, echneiform rashes, some stomatitis, and as well as um, the only thing where gefitinib looked a little bit worse with was some of the transaminitis. Now, this is the flora data. So that was the what I just went through, the Archer 1050 was second generation dacamitinib versus first generation gefitinib. The flora trial was third generation osimertinib versus first generation either erlotinib or gefitinib. And you can see on this slide, a very striking progression-free survival benefit, over eight months improvement, hazard ratio 0.46. And this was true across all of the subsets. And when we look at overall survival, there was actually a statistically significant improvement in overall survival. Um, and so there's still a debate about why not start with a first or second generation drug, and then at the time of progression, switch over to osimertinib, because we know that when you use a first or second generation drug, around 60% of the time, the resistance will be the T790M mutation, which osimertinib can target. So you can get activity with osimertinib if you start with the first or second generation drug and the resistance pathway is T790M. And if in all cases, T790M was the resistance pathway and you could switch over to osimertinib, that would make sense. The challenge we face is that many patients 40 or more percent have other resistance pathways, or at the time of progression, things happen where they never get to osimertinib. And so that's where we get this overall survival benefit from starting with osimertinib. And it was this data that led to practice patterns in the US. Now, there are a lot of reimbursement issues and other questions that have you know, led to different practices around the world, um, but this is sort of the rationale for why the US data is to start with osimertinib. The drug is also overall generally better tolerated um, with much less rash, um, much less diarrhea. But we do need to be mindful of certain toxicities. There is pneumonitis with all of these drugs at low levels. With osimertinib, we do have some cardiac toxicities we need to be mindful of, such as QTC prolongation um, and all, also a very low risk of cardiomyopathy. So it's important that patients starting osimertinib do have EKGs done very regularly when they're first getting started. Um, and then also getting echocardiograms. We also sometimes see um, drops in white counts as well as thrombocytopenia. And so it's important to monitor for those. And those are toxicities we don't always think about with the other TKIs. Okay, another point of flora is that it has superior activity in the brain. Um, these charts are showing higher um, progression-free survival for brain activity and lower risk of, of for development of brain metastases for patients started on first-line osimertinib. 
Um, and so here we again have that overall survival data showing um, a statistically significant hazard ratio improvement um, an overall survival hazard ratio of 0.8. And so again, in the US, this is our standard, but there's a lot of variability still as to why one might think about other drugs. So we're having to think about tolerability, efficacy, and cost. And CNS activity is another factor that we often will think about as well, as that can be quite symptomatic for patients. Okay, so this is the uh, phase two trial of erlotinib versus erlotinib plus bevacizumab. And this was one of the first studies to look at this combination of erlotinib plus or EGFR plus VEGF combination in the setting of EGFR mutations. If you go back in time, before we knew about EGFR mutations, but we had EGFR therapy, we were looking at combining with VEGF therapy then, which was pretty um, exciting, but it never went anywhere because we then started to realize that EGFR therapy really works best when you have the EGFR mutation. So this study in patients with EGFR mutations, erlotinib plus or minus bevacizumab, and the progression-free survival was strikingly in favor of the combination. Um, however, when overall survival was looked at, there was no overall survival benefit. So significant progression-free survival benefit with erlotinib bevacizumab, no overall survival benefit. Um, and this is another phase three trial. Um, that was a phase two. This is a phase three trial of erlotinib plus or minus bevacizumab, again, showing a striking progression-free survival benefit, but we, we don't have the overall survival yet. So NEJO26 toxicity, when you add any two drugs together, you're obviously going to have more toxicity than with one. And when you add an anti-VEGF agent, bevacizumab in this study, you, of course, increase toxicities. There was more neutropenia, some hepatic dysfunction, some hypertension, those sorts of things seen as well, but no treatment-related deaths in the study. So the next big trial that was looking at a combination of a VEGF agent with erlotinib was the RELAY trial, and that's with ramacirumab. Um, so bevacizumab, of course, is the VEGF antibody. Ramacirumab is the VEGF receptor antibody, which we have approved in combination with docetaxel in the U.S., so this was looking at ramacirumab with erlotinib in patients with activating EGFR mutations in the first line. It did exclude patients with brain metastases, um, as well as those who had been previously treated. The brain metastases exclusion was based more on theoretical concerns about toxicity as opposed to lack of efficacy. Um, and I've grown, I, I'm pretty comfortable giving VEGF agents like bevacizumab in patients with brain metastases. So if they'd let me design the study, I wouldn't have made that exclusion, but it is something to keep in mind. Um, and this was the schema. It's, it is an every two week infusion. So obviously that's a hassle for patients as well. Um, but they got erlotinib and then ramacirumab or placebo every two weeks. And then we're followed with the primary endpoint being progression-free survival, which it definitely met. Um, you can see here this striking separation of the curves, strong uh, progression-free survival benefit has a ratio 0.59. Um, I will mention that we do not have overall survival benefit yet from this trial. Because the PFS was the primary endpoint, it did get FDA approval um, in May of this year, so it did make it on the NCCN guidelines. It is an option, but as Dr. Reckham talked about, with the bevacizumab trials, where we didn't end up with that overall survival benefit, 
here we're seeing this big progression free survival benefit with ramucirumab. We don't know if that's going to translate into overall survival benefit or not. And I think that's one of the questions that still remains. Um, when we looked at the, when the relay trial was looked at based on whether the patient had an XO19 or L858R, that didn't seem to matter at all. And when we talk about toxicity, again, if you add another drug, you're going to add more toxicity. First, you've got to think about the toxicity to the patient of having to come in every two weeks um, versus just taking an oral medication. Um, you are also getting uh, increase in potential for infections, of course, hypertension, stomatitis, proteinuria, some alopecia, and other issues as well. Um, and then some laboratory abnormalities that were increased as expected too. But generally, this is a pretty well-tolerated combination. And the next step, of course, is then looking at, well, what about adding VEGF inhibition to osimertinib? If we're using more osimertinib first line, we should see what that does with bevacizumab or ramucirumab. And so there are ongoing trials looking at that. Okay. And then for those of you who are puzzled by our discussion of chemo plus EGFR-TKI, we've had a lot of data coming out on that in the last few years. Again, if you go back in time to when we first started looking at EGFR therapy, before we knew about the mutations, there were a lot of studies of EGFR combination with chemo, but those trials were completely negative. That was before we knew about the mutations. And because the trials in the distant past that were just all comers getting chemo and EGFR therapy were negative, we didn't really go back and look at that question for over a decade. But then this trial came out. This was the NEJ009. And this study was conducted in Japan and they took patients with known activating EGFR mutation and they either got gefitinib alone or they got gefitinib plus chemo. And the chemo in this case was carboplatin pemetrexid. If they were getting all three drugs together, they went on maintenance of gefitinib and pemetrexid. If they only got gefitinib alone at the time of progression, they then went on to get the chemo. So it was sort of a everything concurrently or a sequential approach. It was a very well-designed study. Um, and what was very interesting is that if you looked at this was if you looked at progression one, which was progression on gefitinib alone versus progression on the combination, the combination looked much better. But if you looked at the time point of everybody got so if you looked at the endpoint of the combination of three drugs all together versus the sequential where everybody got gefitinib and then they got their chemo, if you looked at the progression-free survival two which was the time point where everybody had had gefitinib and everybody had, had chemotherapy, those curves actually came together. But despite that, there was a clear overall survival benefit. So for some reason, even though the progression-free survival was the same, if you got sequential gefitinib and then chemo versus all of it together, there was still an overall survival benefit of getting all of them together. So this was very intriguing and led to further studies and questions. There was also a study done in, in India where patients got gefitinib alone or the combination of carboplatin, pemetrexid, and gefitinib. This study was a little bit different because the people getting gefitinib alone did not necessarily go on to get that chemotherapy at the time of progression, um, just based on resources and, and differences. It was a design, different design to the study. But this also showed a clear progression-free survival benefit with the combination. And in this case, also a clear overall survival benefit. So this has really got people thinking, should we be starting with chemo plus an EGFR-TKI as opposed to just an EGFR-TKI alone? But there are a lot of questions, of course, around the toxicity, 
and costs. So this is not yet being widely adopted, but definitely being widely studied. Okay, now I'm gonna talk a little bit about immune therapy in the setting of EGFR mutation positive lung cancer. Dr. Rekamp and I has talked about the toxicity here. The first data that we had that the immune therapy, that um, checkpoint inhibitors, PD-1, PD-L1, might not be so good in EGFR, came from the first checkpoint inhibitor trials in lung cancer, all of which were docetaxel versus a single agent checkpoint inhibitor in the second line. So you gotta think back in time. So docetaxel versus checkpoint inhibitor. In those trials, every single subset had an overall survival benefit with the checkpoint inhibitors versus docetaxel, except patients with EGFR mutations. So that was the only group. And for that reason, most of our trials that have looked at checkpoint inhibitors alone in first line or in combination with chemotherapy first line have excluded patients with EGFR mutations. The best data that we have that really looked at well, what, what truly is the response rate was from the Atlantic trial. And in the Atlantic trial, patients who had an EGFR mutation who had PD-L1 expression of at least 25% had a response rate to single agent checkpoint inhibitors of around 12%, which is lower than we would expect for high PD-L1 expression single agent checkpoint inhibitor in other patients, right? So it's zero, but it's pretty low. But if they had no or low PD-L1 expression, they had almost no response. So when you're using checkpoint inhibitors in patients with EGFR mutations, keep in mind that if they have low PD-L1 expression, the response rates are very low. If they have high PD-L1 expressions, the response rates are still pretty low. They're not terribly low, but they're not great. And we really don't know much about the combination of chemo plus checkpoint inhibitors in patients with EGFR. The only exception was the Empower 150 trial, which we'll talk about. So that's this one. So this study was the only first-line trial. Well, I should, there are two first-line trials, Empower 130 and Empower 150, that had chemotherapy plus or minus the tezolizumab and included patients with EGFR mutations. Empower 150 also included bevacizumab. So it had chemo, bevacizumab, plus or minus atezolizumab. And this study actually showed a progression-free and overall survival benefit for the four-drug regimen in patients with EGFR mutations. But this was a randomized phase two study. We have to be very cautious not to, um, not to like over-interpret this data. Um, there's been a lot of discussion around it, but again, we need to be very, very careful that this was a small study. Okay, um, this is uh, some other data looking at uh, responses to patients with EGFR mutations um, who had received checkpoint inhibitors. This is a pretty complicated slide, but it's essentially showing that patients who have EGFR mutations don't tend to do well. This was a study that was done for patients newly diagnosed with EGFR mutant lung cancer who had high PD-L1 expression and they were randomized to get pembrolizumab first line, they did very poorly. There was only one responder, it turned out they didn't actually have an EGFR mutation, and there was a lot of toxicity on the study. So this is just another study reinforcing approach checkpoint inhibitors cautiously in patients with EGFR mutations, and approach first line immune therapy cautiously in patients who might have an EGFR mutation. So you gotta make sure you know what's going on. We talked a lot about EGFR, because the, the kind of general themes that we have when we think about EGFR also carry over to the other driver mutations, such as ALK. So just like looking for EGFR at the beginning when someone's newly diagnosed, 
especially in a non-smoker, we also need to be thinking about ALK and ROS and RET and MET and BRAF and I can keep going track. There's a there are a large number of these driver mutations where we now have targeted drugs that we know would be better when we find them. So with ALK, when ALK was first discovered, crizotinib was already in development and was found to be better than chemotherapy for patients who had ALK, crizotinib being one of our ALK-targeted drugs. There are newer, more potent ALK drugs, electinib and brigatinib. And at the IASLC World Conference on Lung Cancer, we also heard about insartinib being superior to crizotinib. So many, many choices. This was the data showing that crizotinib was superior to chemotherapy for, for progression-free survival. Um, it did not reach its statistical significance for overall survival because of crossover, but it did have a strong PFS benefit. This was electinib versus crizotinib in Japan, the J-Alex trial, which is the first study we saw of electinib versus crizotinib, strong PFS benefit. And this was the global Alex trial, which also showed very strong progression-free survival improvement, hazard ratio 0.47, um, and overall survival maybe is going to end up being there. It's not yet statistically significant, but look at how long those curves are going out. It's really striking how long our patients with ALK are, are living with their disease, especially when they're on these potent drugs, which are very well tolerated. Um, one of the benefits that we saw, again, with the newer generation drugs is improved brain activity. So just like we saw with the third generation versus first generation EGFR story, same story here with ALK. The later generation ALK drugs are more potent in the brain than the first generation drug, crizotinib. Brigatinib also highly active compared to crizotinib, strongly improved progression-free survival. Um, it also has better brain activity. So when we look at the NCCN guidelines for ALK, electinib is the preferred category one, but we also have brigatinib and we have seritinib. Um, possibly insartinib will eventually end up there. Um, crizotinib is also something to consider in some cases. If a patient progresses on crizotinib, we have electinib, brigatinib, lorlatinib, and uh, seritinib all approved. If they progress on electinib, we have lorlatinib. So we also have five ALK drugs approved, so lots to keep track of. Um, and again, these same themes, like we talked about with EGFR, you gotta look for your driver mutations or you won't find them. If, you, if they're there and you don't know about them, you're not giving the patient the best possible care. With ALK, if you find it, you have five drugs to choose from. Electinib is the preferred one in the US, but crizotinib is also a reasonable option. There are a lot of drugs with activity after crizotinib, and the brain activity is better with those later generation drugs. There's a lot of discussion around looking at VEGF inhibition with ALK, chemo in combination with ALK TKIs, but those are still all trial questions. We do know that ALK often has high PDL1 and really does not respond well to checkpoint inhibitors. So again, you got to really look. Access Medical Education would like to thank our faculty for that excellent presentation and for their dedication to quality continuing professional development. And we thank each of you for your participation. Good day. This activity was provided in partnership with Access Medical Education. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation at reachmd.com CME. This is CME on ReachMD.
be part of the knowledge.